That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. So Ben, you were not well last week. Are you still unwell this week? I'm still unwell. <sighs> the Wuhan Virology Lab is not on my Christmas card list this year, so I'm quite badly afflicted with COVID actually, and I've only just regained my sense of taste after about seven days. I could just about taste the butter on my toast. So things are looking up in that sense, I suppose. Well, as I think I've said to you on numerous occasions, judging by the shirt you're wearing today, I don't, I'm not sure your sense of taste has come back completely, Ben, but uh, I'll, I'll trust you on that one. Tom says this, by the way, for every time I'm not wearing a blue or pastel pink Oxford shirt, which is what I am usually wearing, but today I'm, I'm wearing a polo shirt, which Tom has objected to on every single occasion in which he's seen me wearing. So, <laughs> Standards, Ben. Get, Standards. Although I don't have any sense of taste, we have been feasting on a triumph at the Free Speech Union over the last few days, which is uh, the case of Sean Corby, isn't it? Um, and yeah. we, 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 I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a phenomenal um, legal win. So we're going to talk about that in a bit. But first of all, we wanted to note an anniversary, didn't we, Tom? I've been feeling rather like Joseph of Egypt, not having uh, dreams where stars bow down to me or anything like that. No, that's that that that's not the sort of dream I've been having nightmares um, because it's almost exactly one year since uh, uh, PayPal happened here at the Free Speech Union, and it just happened out of nowhere. It came out of like a truck in the night, and I think. It was at the end of the working day. It was about six o'clock. And when I say PayPal happened, what I mean is um, we stopped having membership dues being processed out of the blue and a third of our membership dues. And Ben, you rely on it for your paycheck. I rely on it for my paycheck. We all rely on it for our paychecks. Um, and even the cat relies on it for its paycheck. Sorry, there's a cat walking across Ben's lap at the moment. Um we need those we need those dues and a third of our dues were at risk just immediately and and several things about that it came out of the blue and i think we we mentioned that at the time um there was no warning given uh, even in some of the worst debanking situations people do tend to get some kind of a warning a few weeks uh this just stopped processing we was the money stopped stopped going and the trouble with an organization like ours you often only get one shot with subscriptions and memberships. If if they don't process the first time, for very understandable reasons, people may never come back and, and re, re, regenerate that transaction or rejoin. And so the whole of the business model was at risk. Um, so it was an immediate all, all battle stations for the weekend trying to sort out what we might do. Uh, and Toby was on pretty much every platform for a 48-hour, 72-hour period trying to bang the drum and say, look, um, this, is, this, is, this is what's happened. Um, it, so it was, it was because we'd, the, the, the claim was that we had um, breached the acceptable use policy, which was, I think, about a 32-page long policy. And as, as everyone knows, you, you, if you need to use 
if you need sorry, the cat the cat is rather amusing it's no, not leaving the screen <laughs> is it gone. then no. No. <laughs> this no. is like a covid this is like i mean you've got covid it's like we're back in lockdown again with it is. cats it is, yeah, it's a horrible horrible flashback to 2020 but <laughs> but i'm mean, paypal for the fsu it really was a near-death experience wasn't it mm. because to lose or have imperiled a third of the subscriptions and then be chasing after people saying, please, can you change your payment method? And people are so busy and hundreds of emails every week and you don't have a chance to deal with all of them about that sort of thing. Um, And all because, not because of anything the Free Speech Union was was saying, but merely for defending the right of people to Mm. speak their minds and because they don't like what Toby says. And... Yeah. Well, that that was the astonishing thing that Toby reiterated on um, the various news news items that he he managed to get onto. He reiterated we weren't even saying anything or taking a view on anything, as as we know from the cases we talk about on this podcast every week. We have people on the left, we have people on the right, we have people in the middle, and we just want to defend their right to free speech in line with the law, and yet that was for whatever reason enough to get us booted off PayPal. Uh, thankfully, was it a week later? I can't remember. It felt like a lifetime, but a, a, a yeah. week later, the, the, the processing started again. I, I, we put in an appeal. Uh, it didn't seem like the appeal had worked initially, um, but at some random point, uh, the, the, the transaction started going through again. So we were we breathed a sigh of relief, really, um, that a third of our income wasn't going to disappear overnight, but uh, it was it was the first of many of these uh, situations where people have odd relationships with their bank. Uh, obviously, Nigel Farage, nearly uh, nine months later, about nine months later, had exactly the same. Well, not exactly the same thing. Actually, it was, it was rather different. But in essence, again, his his banking being shut down by coots. Which, of course, is, is then brings us on to a, quite an, another important point for our listeners to be aware of, which is that we do have, a, a, we have an event planned. Because we are so close to the anniversary of um, our PayPal debanking, and also, of course, we had the same thing happen to Nigel just a few weeks, months ago. We do have an event coming up um, here in London uh, where Nigel will be in conversation with Toby, uh, around about 12, yeah, 12 months after our own PayPal debanking. And that's on Monday the 9th of October at the Hippodrome Casino here in uh, in London. So do get your tickets. You can go to our website and uh, it's open to all members of the FSU. So so sign up as a as a member and, um, and it'll be great to see you. It's a late night conversation. I think one of the reasons it has to be a late night conversation is Nigel actually has his show earlier on in the evening so he has to he has to sort of make it down through london to the west end uh and 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 be available to have his conversation with toby but i think that would be a really interesting chat about the state of uh, uh sort of this 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 phenomenon of financial exclusion and and who it's who it's getting to and the and how it's affecting the most vulnerable uh, so do do join us for that for that conversation. That'd be super. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it, and I'm not going to do what I did when I was a student. And I heard Nigel Farage drinking and played the Nigel Farage drinking game with friends, and we turned up at this absolutely packed lecture theatre. This was, I suppose, it was in 2011, 2012, about that kind of time. 
Um, so Nigel Farage was able to come onto university campus, absolutely gigantic audience of people, some hostile, some sympathetic, some neutral. Um, and that feels like a lost golden age, uh, although it's not quite, but it, mm. you know, it's a different, very different climate 10 years hence. Um, anyway, we, we have bottled water, which was in fact about 50% gin, 50% tonic with a uh, slice squeezed in. And every time he said EU or European Union, you had to drink a measure. And if he said tick box Eurocats in Brussels, you had to down your drink. And my friends and I crawled out of that lecture theatre and Britain voted for Brexit and the rest is history. Um, but uh, I will not oh, be wow. repeating that. It was quite good fun at the time. And that wasn't an FSU get together. That was no, that wasn't. was student life. Student life many, many years ago. Uh, but it'll be a great event. I'm really looking forward to that. I think I told you this before, but it reminds me of my favourite drinking game, which is that everyone has to get into a circle one person leaves the room and everyone has to work out who it was. <laughs> Which really only works later on in the evening. But the first time I heard that, that really... Right, on. So, <clears throat> Sean Corby, who I mentioned at the beginning. Um, and Sean is a... Uh, he was an employee of ACAS, who we've been helping for a year or more now, I think. Um, and his case has been reported uh, over the weekend. He was on GB News last night, that was Sunday night. And he is somebody who approaches critical race theory, equality, equity, all of these issues from the perspective that I think would command a majority support of the British public without any difficulty whatsoever, which is that you should treat people by the content of their character and that the racial divisiveness of critical race theory of modern anti-racism equity and so on is detrimental to what would have once be called community relations and relations between people and that we should just treat each other as worthwhile individuals and not break people down into their their characteristics and their ethnic groups so that's his perspective it's worth noting early on in telling this story that um, Sean Corby's wife is black so there is absolutely no possibility whatsoever no remote possibility of racial animus whatsoever. He was talking about these views uh, in ACAS who worked for on the internal Yammer channel, the sort of internet. And there had been a discussion about race issues and he put forward this Martin Luther King view about the importance of the content of people's character and so on. And other colleagues objected and this, what he'd said was deemed to be racist and so on. He pushed back against that. Of course, he's he's not racist. He's not motivated by racism. His motivation is exactly opposite. It's to make sure that a multiracial society can function, that people can communicate and get along with each other and work together. Um, so an entirely commendable perspective. And this has become, all too predictably in modern Britain, it pains me to say, a battle in the employment tribunal. And the big win that was achieved last week, um, he was represented by John Holbrook, is that the uh, judge in the employment tribunal has said that holding the view that you're opposed to critical race theory and that you think people should be judged by the content of the character and so on is a protected belief under the Equality Act. Uh, so as with Maya Forstatter's case in the employment tribunal that gender critical views are worthy of respect in a democratic society, they, they pass what lawyers call the Granger test, um, so too are Sean's views and the views of millions of others 
uh, deemed to be protected. Albeit, this is the first stage of the process, and so the ruling is not binding, but it does set up very nicely the next stage of uh, of Sean's battle, and it also gives an indication of how an employment tribunal will look at this issue in the future. It's interesting about this case is I don't think Sean, the, the people who complained about Sean, had even met him in person. So they knew very little about his background or, as you said, his, his very thoughtful holding of, of views uh, in line with uh, the, the, the philosophy of Martin Luther King. He was based up in the north of England. I think the complainants were down in London. Uh, and they'd, they'd done the, the classic thing of, of jumping to um, all sorts of conclusions about his character and about where he was coming from, which, as you've very um, eloquently laid out, just makes no no sense given given who he is and, and his background, etc. And the other thing I, I hadn't looked into as much, and we haven't really talked about on, on the podcast, is what you just mentioned about the Granger test, which is a series of five tests. They actually date back to the early days of the Equality Act in 2010. Um, and it, it, it's interesting, it's quite a hurdle to prove that uh, a belief set or, or an opinion or, in this case, you know, anti-critical race theory uh, belief is and can be treated as a protected belief under the Equality Act. So there are five part criteria to the Granger test. First of all, the belief must be genuinely held. And, and Sean said he had three days of, of cross-examining, uh, you know, from in the court, from the judge, which must be pretty grueling just to try and test that you genuinely believe in, in the belief. It must be a belief and not an opinion or viewpoint based on the present state of information available, secondly. Thirdly, it must be a belief as to a weighty and substantial aspect of human life and behaviour. Fourthly, it must attain a certain level of cogency, seriousness, cohesion and importance. And fifthly, it must be worthy of respect in a democratic society, be not incompatible with human dignity and not conflict with the fundamental rights of others. And that fifth test, interestingly, on the Meyerful starter case initially was the one that proved the most difficult hurdle. And I think that's where that phrase, not worthy of respect in a democratic society, came out in the initial judgment and was then overturned on appeal. Um, but my goodness me, Sean has gone through the mill to sit in court and um, prove that he passes those five tests. And and I guess I take a few things away from that. First of all, Sean's a, a man of courage to do that and, and to put himself through that. Uh, secondly, I think it's worth realising just how it's not automatic that an opinion, a view is... is is subject to protection under the Equality Act. I think a lot of... I certainly made this mistake. I wouldn't need to go back that far in time, actually, when I was making the mistake and thinking, well, it's a belief, it's a philosophical belief. Surely it's protected. You've actually got these hurdles that you've got to jump over to prove that it's a, a philosophical belief. And, and thirdly, I thought... Or lastly, I just thought it was an interesting observation about this whole, the whole context. And, and Sean made this point on, 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 on the TV last night which is, this is ACAS, his employer's ACAS. This is a, an organisation that is responsible for mediating and resolving conflicts of all sorts of... It is the place that you go to if, you're, if you get into the sort of situation that Sean Corby or any other, other 
numerous numbers of our members get into. You go to Aidcast to help mediate, to help settle, and to help solve problems. But in this instance, of course, Aidcast was the other party. Uh, and I think it, it, it was a particularly curious case from simply that perspective. It's worth repeating or quoting from some of the complaint that was made against Sean. And so one part of it was that he was using the Lama, the, the sorry, excuse me, the Yammer platform, that's the internal intranet, to promote racist ideas, that's a direct quote, uh, and that he had demonstrated a deep-rooted hatred towards black and minority ethnic people. And then you get all the usual stuff about, I fear for any black and minority ethnic people working in his office, and all the stuff about safety that uh, we're going to return to in another segment shortly, um, but which we see everywhere all the time, the idea that holding a different view is making people literally unsafe in some way as yet uh, unadduced and unexplained. But it's a, it's a big win. Though, but, uh, one, of, one of the... Yeah, go, go, go on, Tom. Go on. I was just, just going to say in terms of the big wins, I don't know if you were going to go on to the implications of this uh, win. Because in the newsletter, it really something that jumped out at me was that there are a number of implications of this and one of them that i was obviously close to my heart is uh goes back to the b corp uh, report that we wrote now b corps um we, we've done a whole episode on them and we've done a whole briefing paper on them and and said that they are a very worrying development for free speech and one of the reasons is because of uh they the whole structure of b corps is around jedi justice equity diversity and inclusion and that justice word when it comes to racial politics, is, is rooted so much in grievance politics in, in universities in the US and, of course, in critical race theory. And um, this judgment, uh, as you say, it hasn't yet been applied in practice and, and, and that will be an important next stage. But this judgment in principle um, gives standing to, to employees who may push back against Jedi or in B Corps, who may say, I'm not convinced that uh, critical race theory is the way to go, that this grievance politics way of looking at the world is the way to go. Um, and then it, it, it ties in with so many things in terms of ramifications for our members coming to us in casework, having said that they don't believe in uh, a critical race theory view of the world. They do believe in a Martin Luther King colorblind um view of the of race and uh also i think it it, 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 it so many organizations have said they are a proudly anti-racist organization you know that phrase means something it's a technical meaning for, for a company to say that it, it is a critical race theory label uh that is being applied there and uh again it gives employees in not not doesn't give anyone carte blanche because it has to, again, the outworking of these beliefs has to be in line with various codes of conduct. You can't just go in and, if you, it's a balanced, it's a balanced position where you, you put forward your view that's different and it's a protected view, but you have to be cognizant of the other views that are out there and similarly protected. So it's not a free-for-all by any stretch, but it just gives people something they can push back on. And this sort of axiomatic view of the world that's, that's gone through corporate since the death of George Floyd, that you know we're going to be a proudly anti-racist organization. We, we, we believe um, in ideas of white privilege, inherited guilt. Um, there is now a, a way of pushing back against that and, and realizing that it has teeth to push, to push back against that. So that was what I was going to say, Ben. My concern about this is that 
the Free Speech Union and others are winning these tactical battles and the list of protected characteristics. Within the Equality Act, the protected beliefs under the Religion and Belief strand are a growing list. So it's quite quite varied now. It includes gender critical views, in this case opposition to critical race theory, it includes vegetarianism, a whole load of other things are now deemed to be protected beliefs. But the problem is we've got to a point in law where essentially your views are not automatically to be tolerated. They're only tolerated once a judge, after two years of legal wrangling and and going through the employment tribunal, has decided that they're worthy of respect and they pass the Granger tests. And so we've we've sort of jettisoned the common law approach and we've, we've got to the sort of Napoleonic code view of it, unless it is explicitly permitted, it is forbidden. And there are all sorts of bigger arguments about the Equality Act and whether it's it's best to keep working through the religion and belief protected characteristic and to keep growing that list of protected beliefs. And that's the legal context we find ourselves in, whether we like it or not. And so it seems to me that it's a perfectly good thing to do to keep expanding that list of beliefs so that people like Sean Corby and others do have protection. And this really is a, a groundbreaking victory mm. in that campaign. But it's a complete double-edged sword that it's the tactical way that we have to win guerrilla-type free speech warfare. Uh, but it's no way to win the war, to be creating this ever-increasing list of privileged groups who are treated with... Um, a level of deference and respect that maybe other groups are not. And we're seeing this everywhere with the Equality Act and we're seeing this everywhere with the casework that we're, we're, we're dealing with. Another example in, from Australia, actually, this idea of a privileged group or a group with a, with a voice uh, that's amplified over and above others is in relation to the upcoming referendum, which we haven't, I don't think we talked about at all, but the upcoming referendum about whether the um, indigenous people of Australia uh, should have a voice that, that is in some way amplified during the legislative process and, and listened to. So again, um, and it's hot news, so we wouldn't want to... <laughs> we're not in Australia, but we wouldn't want to say things that, that, that compromise. Uh, well, we wouldn't. We wouldn't have that amount of influence, but <laughs> we're not going to affect the outcome of that referendum. But it's astonishing um, how many corporates... Even I, I read over the weekend, even Qantas has kind of said, um, vote yes for the voice, this, this voice of the indigenous people in, in Australia. And... Again, it doesn't come from a place, it comes from a place of thinking that must be the right thing to do. But it does mean that one group of Australians are going to have a, a level of favouritism over another group of Australians. And, and to me, that that is a sort of another version of what we're doing here in, in the UK by creating all of these groups who are treated slightly differently. It's, it's not a healthy way, fundamentally, of doing things. I did see over the weekend that Keir Starmer was talking about a race equality act of some kind that Labour would pass if it's elected. And one imagines it, it, it would contain rather censorious dimensions to it, to put it mildly. Um, so he would, so was he, was he, has he said anything about whether it would be based on critical race theory or, or, or it's not, it's not. About I don't think, I don't think there's any content about it. I just saw that, that he, he posted a, a tweet 
for Black History Month talking about Labour's plan for a race equality act. Mm. Um, one would imagine it would it would turbocharge the negative aspects of the equality act from a free free speech perspective. Mm. Um, so and that that's the other problem, of course, is that we're in a situation where we are in the legal terrain that we're in and we're winning these tactical victories, which is great. It's, it's really important and it's great for, for Sean and people like him and so on. But that legal architecture is not immovable and the rug could be pulled out from under all of these arguments by a single act of parliament. Well, your point about the switch from common law to Napoleonic is well made, but also this switch from the legislature to the judiciary essentially is another way of saying the same thing, I suppose. But um, the legislature is in many ways is shirking uh, its responsibility or just not facing up to the consequences of what it's, what it's done in the past. And it will take a brave person to walk in and, and to say, uh, OK, we need to start again. Uh, this is this has got a little crazy. This has become Byzantine in its complexity, and no one fully understands it. No one quite. And of course, if it's complex, and if no one quite knows where they stand, even if they do have a win, even if they do have uh, uh, support in law, it's in and of itself it stops people from saying things because it's not clear to them, and they're thinking, well, if it's not clear to me, it may well not be clear to people who don't like me. And the people who don't like me may raise a complaint and they may put me through a process. So I may have the law on my side, but I still better shut up. And that, that is what we are seeing everywhere. We are seeing that people are just not saying things because of the uncertainty of how it will play out. Not even necessarily because of the underlying truths behind it. And it's worth just stressing again the most fundamental point about Sean's case is that this is not somebody who wants to express racist views at work and has been prevented from doing so. This is somebody who has a black wife, is strongly, personally opposed to racism of any sort for obvious reasons, and simply takes a different view about how to tackle racism, how to remove racism from society. Mm. Um, and even in that situation, even with that perfectly respectable view, it's still been years of fighting through the employment tribunal um so it's it is an important win it's a very important win but i i think there needs to be some caution you know if you're picking up the paper and reading about these stories that all of this could be swept away yeah by yeah. a single act of parliament and that the foundations for this are rickety i think yeah, it's a, it's potentially a house built on sand rather than a house built on rock, or at least it's a house yeah. built on wood, uh, a wooden yes. deck. Yes, yeah, so if the yeah. wrong fire comes through at the wrong time, uh, you wake up in the morning, it's gone. Yeah. So any any tightening of what religion and belief means in the Equality Act that cuts away all of these cases, any anything like that. Yeah. Um, but for now, I think we can we can bank a really solid victory here. Absolutely, we can. And thank you to the support, a huge amount of support from our members. And of course, thank you to Sean for persevering through this. It's, it's not easy. It really is not at all. It, it, it's somewhat nightmarish. Um, but we now know that we, we don't have to be as homogenous as... Uh, as maybe we did before the um, before the ruling, and talking about 
the great homogenous or the great homogeneity of our cultural discussion at the moment, um, we thought it might be interesting to move on to talk about Ofcom and some of the things that have been happening in that arena. Obviously, we've had huge amount of volume up this week uh, using a TV reference in relation to GB News and uh, in relation to calls from from people uh, to sh- that the, 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 the channel should be shut down, which uh, I guess has horrified most of our listeners um, because it's, if, I, I was thinking it felt very much like uh, Russia Today being shut down for very different reasons, but soon after the outbreak of the Ukraine war in 2022, uh, Russia Today was shut down. And, and, and it is a very different case but nevertheless, at that time, uh, Toby did write in our newsletter uh, that actually this is this is worrying. This is a very Soviet thing to do. Are we are we really thinking this through? The shutting down of a of a news outlet um, is that is that the right thing to be doing? We're not at war with Russia, although obviously sanctions galore were being rolled out by the day, and we we clearly are allies of the Ukraine. But we are not technically at, at war with Russia. So would we then shut down that TV station is, is a reasonable question to ask. Uh, but it was shut down, and, it, in, and I'm not sure much of a debate happened. There has been a lot more debate, though, in the last week over, over GB News, but it's been a rather homogenous debate. I mean, there have been panel discussions on programmes like Newsnight where pretty much everyone on the panel has said it's, it, it should be shut down. It's interesting, yesterday at Conservative Party conference, it was heartening to hear Priti Patel state uh, clearly and unambiguously that uh, GB News should be should not be shut down. And it was very well received, as, as would be expected, very well received by those attendees. So hopefully Ofcom is listening to both sides of the story and not just panels on Newsnight that have um, a, a one-sided view. But I don't know if you've been following the story at all, Ben. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the point about, about Russia today, um, you know, I, I just fundamentally share the unease about the shutting down of that channel. I mean, it's watched by about 12 people. <laughs> it's, it's sort of sub-lord, ho-ho type gibberish. Um, it, it's interesting in the sense of seeing what, what the line of the Russian government is. And you can, you can see things from, um, you know, on Twitter, often you see clips with translations of what Russian state media is broadcasting in Moscow and what it's saying. So that, that that's quite interesting to see what the Russian public are consuming and what the Russian government is saying. Um, and I think it's quite useful to be able to see that. And I think that's a legitimate thing to do if you want to follow the news of the invasion and, and what the internal Russian discussion is. I think that's really important if you want to be you know, f- fully in command of the fact about what's going on. Um, and then obviously the free speech points about shutting down the channel. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I completely share the unease about that. And then as for GB News, um, there was this really troubling, weird segment on Newsnight last week that I expect a lot of people will now have seen, where there was a, a panel of people discussing the, the uh, Dan Whitten suspension, Lawrence Fox suspension and so on. Um, and they were talking then about GB News more generally and talking about the threat it posed to the broadcasting ecosystem was the phrase that was used. And there was a whole panel of people who all basically agreed with each other that GB News was a terrible thing and it ought to be shut down. And 
it's just it's astonishing from the perspective of BBC balance. How on earth did the BBC production team think that that was going to be a worthwhile, reasonable discussion in line with the BBC's mission to have a load of people who will agree with each other about this issue? Um, and regardless of what you think about what Lawrence Fox said, um, there will be free speech absolutists who say, well, it was after the watershed, it was clearly a joke. He should be allowed to say it. There will be people who say, well, actually, he can say what he likes in private, but that's not the kind of thing that should be broadcasted. It was degrading and so on. Um, so whatever you, th- whatever view you take about what he said, the idea that it follows that GB News should therefore be shut down because it's a threat to the broadcasting ecosystem, really weird. And it, it seems to me like a group of people who were saying the quiet bit out loud um, that they they were saying on TV as if they were just speaking privately among a group of like-minded friends. It gives a lot of way, doesn't it? Because there's the word it gives the a broad, lot of way. broadcast yeah. ecology is a delicate broadcast ecology. It makes it sound like a sort of yeah. I don't know an aquarium or something, and 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 suddenly GB News has been dropped in as a shark, and you think really uh, you're that vulnerable. Uh, the BBC, the ITV, Channel Four, you're that vulnerable. Uh, to an upstart channel yeah. that has already had advertising boycotts. Uh, uh, maybe they realise they are. I mean, sometimes GB News is is streaking ahead at certain times of day, ahead of Sky and ahead of B- the BBC, and and maybe they are, are nervous. But there seems to be a real arrogance there, doesn't there, uh, about, hey, we're, we're the police officers. We we hold the territory. We're the we're the grown ups. We're the grown ups, and 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 this upstart channel. Ah, we told you, didn't we say when it started? This is what it would be like, and and lo and behold, and yet there are similar sort of situations where there are complaints made to Ofcom about the BBC. There are complaints made to Ofcom about Channel Four, and 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 not of a dissimilar ilk, but maybe just on the different side of the political argument. I did see that Guido Fawkes had posted um, if you wanted to make a complaint to Ofcom about the BBC Newsnight episode. Yeah. Uh, instructions about how to do that, if anyone's feeling so inclined. I presume yeah. Guido Fawkes has then been uh, called to be shut down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wanting to go with Mary Whitehouse about it, but the rubbish that Channel 4 puts out, I mean, my goodness, or indeed BBC 3, um, yeah. in a, it, it, it just... There's a lack of self-awareness. Well, it amuses me, and, and there may be some truth in what Nick Robinson says about uh, the Today programme uh, losing a million viewers, viewers, listeners uh, on the radio. And he made the point: well, actually, quite a few people are just avoiding the news; they're, they're ceasing to listen. I think there's, a, I think there's a lot of truth in what he says. There, people are avoiding the news, but you do then have to ask the question: well, why? Why why are they avoiding the news? Is it really that terrible? Is it really that ghastly? Um, Yes, we've got the war in Ukraine, but we had the war in Iraq. We had the war in in Bosnia during the 90s. We've had terrible things going on in the news all the time. And, And we've had disruption and concern. I, I, and I think it's just so such a simplistic diagnosis, uh, whereas actually, my, my own view, I used to listen to the Today program every morning. I, I just don't now mm. because I find it, it, it anyone who, who, who says things that I might think, oh, that's interesting, they get shut down. Uh, if they're yeah. not quite the orthodoxy that we talk about every week, uh, they get, they get uh, sort of barracked 
by the by the hosts of, of, of the Today programme. So I, I had to switch it off. It became unlistenable. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I've heard other commentators say similar. I think if you if you just watched BBC News or just listened to BBC News radio programmes, you'd be very partially informed about both world events and about British politics. Uh, I mean, for instance, things like, like the Sean Corby case, it's not the most important news story in the world, I grant that, but it's an important legal development that one would think the BBC would note, and there's no reporting about it. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, isn't it? That there's a, same with um, uh, Colonel Dr. Kelvin Wright. That's an important yeah. point where the, Minister of, the Ministry of Defence has been found uh, to have got it wrong. That, that's important, yeah, yeah. but I don't believe that hit the mainstream much, if at all. Well, it was in the Mail and the Telegraph. Right, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. so it, it has, uh, and on Talk TV as well, Piers Morgan interviewed Calvin Wright. Do go and watch that clip, it was excellent. It's a good clip. Um, but, yeah, it, the BBC are just not interested in that kind of material. And so you, you would have a very, very murky, unclear understanding of the contours of British politics and cultural debates and so on, if you only consume BBC News. So I, th I think that's part of it, that you, you know that you're just not going to be well informed um, if you only listen to BBC News. And of course, a lot of people now on online, it's YouTube, it, well, YouTube in particular is a really rich resource. <laughs> it's, a, it's a varied resource. There's a lot of drivel on YouTube, but there's a lot of very interesting discussions that take place, long form discussions. Uh, and expansive deep dives into the issues of the day that you just you just would not see on the BBC. And interestingly, going back to Russia today, of course, with a good VPN uh, and internet connection, you can bypass that ban anyway and watch <laughs> watch it in a digital age. All the rules have changed, um, and I think yeah. we've almost got the, the the audience split into two: those who are going further and further down the digital rabbit hole, and those who are staying much more on the analog. Uh, side, but I, I agree with you about where the analog folk, uh, how they're going to be feeling about life is going to be very different. Well, one feels that the broadcasting ecology is going to continue to change, uh, whether BBC News and I guess like it or it's not. It's very delicate. Don't forget how delicate it is, Ben. I mean, in the midst of this, of course, we then have the online safety bill uh, giving Ofcom more power uh, at the very same yeah. time that we're, we're worrying about um, Ofcom's uh, potential overreach if they if they do decide that GB News in a Soviet fashion needs to be maybe it won't decide to be shut down but at least clamped down on or, or punished in some way uh, at the same time as that's happening uh, Ofcom's got this huge new power which is to set guidance on online safety and uh, you know as I think I <laughs> the way I summed it up when I was thinking about this is well what could possibly go wrong um, I know there was a lot of good news about the online safety bill and a lot of good news last week about what the Free Speech Union has done, but Ofcom has a lot of power now um, to, to police what's online. Yeah, we, I mean, we talked last week, didn't we, so we'll not repeat ourselves, but we, we chipped away a lot of the uh, most censorious aspects of the legislation, so it's not as bad as it might have been. But it's a, it's a bouncy week for news because, of course, it is Conservative Party conference at the moment, which is always a lot of fun. Um, and we did, as I, as I say, Pretty Patel made that call out and got a rousing response for, uh, for supporting GB News and supporting free speech 
at the conference yesterday. But there's also another conference item coming up, which is, uh, I think the speech is going to go out on Tuesday. And it certainly caught my eye because it was all about data and about public bodies' collection of data. In essence, they, they're not, they haven't been doing it right. Uh, and this is essentially comes down to a collection of gender data. And what, 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 what we all suspected might be happening has been happening, namely uh, data collection agencies such as uh, the Office for National Statistics and uh, even Scotland's chief statistician have been slightly changing the rules of the road over recent years and decided sort of on their own account to, to collect gender rather than biological sex data. And as I say, we, 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 we were all suspicious about it, but trying to prove it, trying to prove it is, is tough. I mean, going back to it, it's a process. I think uh, the Office for National Statistics had to be taken to high court um, because the census guidance said it was possible to change your biological sex. And all the time you're going through that process in the meantime, people on the other side of the argument, on the other side of the free speech argument, are sort of waving the statistics that are official statistics in the air and saying, you see, you see, this is the proportion of people who are uh, transgender or, or non-binary or whatever, whatever, the new, whatever the new gender may be. Uh, so you're going through in real time a court process to prove that the stats are, are flawed. And, and meantime, you're dealing with opposition, which is winning on many fronts uh, and, 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 and shutting down debate, as we know. And so it'll be very interesting to see what... So the, 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 the minister is Michelle Donnellan, uh, and she'll be speaking. She's the science secretary. She'll be speaking. And by the time this podcast goes out, I think that... Um, uh, speech will will have will have happened, but data is so important. Data really is life and death. And I'm, I know I'm biased, Ben, as director of data, but data is life and death. Well, I think in in this case, the argument made by gender critical feminists and campaign groups is absolutely watertight. That society has to know what the breakdown yeah. is of its population by sex for all sorts of perfectly obvious reasons. Um, yeah. I think exhibit A in this is the census, isn't it? The census question that asks, is the gender you identify with the same as your sex registered at birth? Which is almost just gibberish, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it, even if you accept the terminology, I mean, it's, it, in its own terms, it doesn't make sense. It's a, it's a whiff away from uh, sex assigned at birth, which, as we know, is the, is the, is the ongoing phrase. Yeah. But, I mean, just a few things that, uh, when I say life and death, um, you know, that sounds glib, but it isn't. And, and the reason it isn't is because it's about uh, how people are treated. It's about prisons. It's about um, uh, where money goes, where government money goes, uh, what initiatives it doesn't go on, what it does go on. Uh, an example here is uh, in 2005, the Athena Swan Charter was established to encourage commitment to advancing the careers of women in higher education in areas in the STEM, in the STEM subjects, so science, engineering, and maths. In 2016, Athena Swan, and this is according to The Telegraph, recommended that data collection should be based on gender identity rather than sex. Well, doesn't that rather undermine immediately this, this idea of getting more women into STEM subjects? Uh, if if Ben, you 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 decide you're a woman, you're you're suddenly going to get that. Um, uh, you're in that cohort then of of people who can go to the Athena Swan, uh, and 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 get waved through. 
in essence. I fear there are even bigger obstacles to my participating in STEM subjects, Tom, than that. But... <laughs> yeah, which we have talked about on many, on many occasions, Ben. There are many, many also. But you know, this, this, this crazy statistics actually matters. Decisions are made. Money is allocated. Um, and as we've talked about, it's not just um, a superficial uh, wafer-thin issue. It goes a lot deeper into society. And that it's got to the official census in England and the official census, uh, or the official statistician in Scotland, with, a, with again, with no debate. No debate. In fact, having the debate is banned. Uh, it's, it's beyond time. They've been forced to discuss their reasoning for this in, in court, haven't they? They've been bludgeoned into into having the conversation. But can I just share the, the, the one quite surprising finding that uh, has Please been reported, do. which is that one in 67 British Muslims is transgender, according to the census. And I put it to you that that is, in fact, quite an unlikely result. Um, <laughs> and that, of course, all of, all of this nonsense research then becomes a stick with which to beat quangos and the government and officials and so on in seeing the things that activists wanted to do anyway even before they saw these nonsense figures uh so well it, it, it matters it, it's of course it matters absolutely crucial that that we know how many people live in the united kingdom and what their sex is and how old they are and all the rest of all the other stuff that the, the, the census collects um and to have it undermined by officials and by activists and by people that are willing to or unable to push back against these things it's groupthink well, so, and, 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 and it's statistics. I mean, lies, lies, and statistics, Ben. You, you, that point about uh, you know the number of uh, Muslims in the UK who are who are transgender is is crazy. Um, but what happens with statistics is the argument gets played in different ways depending on the position from which you come. So it's argued well before we took before society changed to be more accepting of LGB people, clearly, or LGBT people, clearly they just weren't. Um, they were going under the radar. We weren't aware of them. And, and so you can run statistical arguments in all sorts of directions. And something I know from working with statistics for a long, long time is, is to have a sense of uncertainty on everything before drawing conclusions, to have a set, to, to, to walk slowly and hesitantly because there are so many fallacies in the world of statistics. You know, correlation is not causation, is the simplest and most well-known one. But there are multiple things you can really get wrong with statistics if you infer from the wrong place too quickly uh, and, and make a decision. So, you, you, you know, I think of, there's some classic examples and, and um, probabil probability examples where I, I don't actually answer the questions anymore because I think, I... I might have a, a degree in mathematics, but I'm not sure what the answer to this statistical conundrum is because it's it's tough. It's it's really tough to, to, to draw solid conclusions from stats. And then when the stats are being manipulated in the first place and can't be relied upon in the first place, then you, you double down on the potential confusion. Uh, it's it's not a good place to be at all. But uh, I'm, I've confused you completely now, haven't I, with statistics? <laughs> No, I can just about I can just about cope. my 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 COVID adult mind is just about with you, Tom. Still, um, but I think that's um, you've had your rant about statistics and about the census. I have quite right, and I think we can I we can move on to our final item, can't we? Which is uh, the no platforming and now the re-platforming. I'm happy to say of Dr. Alka Segal Cuthbert, the director of 
don't divide it. Um, and so if you heard last week's episode, you'll be familiar with the story that she'd been no platform because conference attendees had said that her presence at an event hosted by a group called Rethinking Education would make them feel unsafe. Uh, again, this language not explained in any way how that would be the case, but there we are. But I'm happy to say that Free Speech Union is replatforming her and the event which she was scheduled to speak at, We Are Running, uh, which will take place on Monday the 16th of October at 7pm and if you are a member of the Free Speech Union you will have been sent details of that. So we have a packed event calendar actually coming up in the run-up to Christmas. So if you're not a member do sign up for access to our member-only events. And it's great news that the people at the, at the re-platformed event is the same panel uh, that was going to be at the, the original event. So it will be Dr. Uh, Alka Sagal Cuthbert, but also the other the other three psychologically resilient fellow panelists will be making an appearance as well, and I think that is that is great news. And the subject of the debate is what is indoctrination within education, and how might it be avoided? So such a such a hot topic, and such an interesting topic, and a relevant topic. But that will be, I think you already said, on Monday the sixteenth of October. So That's it's right. available yeah. for any members to sign up to so so do grab that do grab um a ticket to see uh, nigel farage in conversation with toby young as well uh, and that's coming up uh, on the 9th of october so that's pretty imminent but that will be great a night a late night in the west end talking to two titans of free speech i think so um that'll be that'll be fun and there'll be there may even be the odd drop of alcohol obviously i wouldn't touch it myself but i heard that there no may problems. even be the odd drop of alcohol there's a bar apparently um but ben do you have anything else to, to add no that's all thank you for listening and we will see you next time yes thank you very much for listening and feel better soon ben thank you bye for now